Well, good morning, church. Trust you had a great Christmas. Wife and I took a long trip to Texas, stayed there a couple days, took a long trip back. It's good to be back in in Florida with you folks. You, you look good. Great to see you. Well, this week, uh, this month, we're going to begin a new series that we've entitled, I Choose. You know, we all make choices every day. Some of our choices are little, like what we had for breakfast. For me, two eggs over easy, toasted butter, toasted bread with, with a lot of butter. That was my choice this morning. Sometimes we make choices that are really big, like, like whom we marry. I married my wife, Cindy, best choice I ever made. We all make choices. Some of our choices seem to have little consequences. Some of our choices change our lives. Some choices seem to do nothing for the world. Other choices might change the trajectory for you, for your family, for your church. Life is about a series of choices. Everything from the trivial to the eternal. In Joshua chapter 24... You remember Joshua and the people of Israel, they were called upon when they were making a covenant with God that they had to make a choice. In fact, the text tells us, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose you this day. Well, in the month of January, we're going to help you make some choices. Now, any one of these choices in and of themselves could be pretty significant. But if you could take the the five choices in this series and combine them together into your life, wow, you might find that uh, your life would be be very different. So I want to look at those choices this morning. And being the first Sunday of the new year, I want to begin with with an interesting approach to how we can understand Life And so I want you to think with me this morning. You already heard the, the text read, but let me read this Matthew text one more time for you. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, now remember, Jesus had been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He had been given the people, the, the, the crowds that are thronged, he had been teaching on some, some very important subjects, some very shocking subjects. So he just finished these sayings. He, he was all done. The last amen was just about to wrap up. And here's what the text says. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, I love this text of Scripture, but there are two words in this text that we have to understand. If you don't understand these two words, you might not fully understand all that Jesus did on the earth and all that he wants to do in you and I. The first word is the word astonished. That's how it is in in the English Bible. And just permit me for a moment to to give you a little background to that word as it's understood in the the Greek text in which it was written. The word astonished comes from a Greek word, ek pleso. Ek is a preposition. It means out of. Pleso is a a word, a verb that means uh, from whence action or motion precedes. It means being struck out of something. It's like being uh, something is being expelled by a blow. So expresso means that, that something has happened, significant happening, that has made other things come out of us. Now, figuratively speaking, the word means to drive out of one's senses by a sudden shock. 
It's to, it's to be exceedingly struck in mind. It, it's to be caught, be, it's to be filled with amazement, with, with wonder. It, in fact, it even means to the sense that when, when, when you are struck by this ekpleso, it means that you are overcome with emotion, with feeling, with thought, with, with just stuff going on inside of you. Now, here's what we also need to understand, and, and, and bear with me for just a second, is when the Bible was written, it wasn't written in English. It was written in various languages, and Greek was this language. But before it got to us in English, it passed through the Latin language. Now, in Latin, this word was often tra translated in a, a slightly different but similar way. The word in Latin meant to strike with thunder. Now, here's what I want you to see. Jesus was teaching. His hearers listened, probably jaws dropped, to the words Jesus was teaching. And when he was all said and done, their minds were blown. They were struck with this radical message that their minds just could not contain it. So let, me, let me put it in a little more colloquial sense. If you were a 60s hippie at, G, at the Sermon on the Mount, any 60s hippies? You don't have to, okay, we have one person down here who will admit it. There are a dozen more of you who are thinking, yeah, that was me, but I'm in church and I don't want to say anything. If you were a 60s hippies, here's how you would have responded to that, to this teaching of Jesus. You would say something like, man, my mind is blown. Man, it's blown. Have you ever seen the cartoons and there's these, these thought bubbles where they go, that's what was happening here. The, the people were listening to Jesus. They, they heard these words and their minds just went, Phew. they were blown. I mean, if you lived back then, your mind would, would be blown too. Because Jesus said in, in Matthew, one of the things that Jesus taught was he said, you have heard that it was said of, the, uh, of old, you shall not murder. But Jesus comes along and he, not, and he now says it, it's, not a, it's no longer not just a sin to murder. But if you're even angry with somebody, it's like you've committed murder. Any murderers in here? I live in Houston. I murder someone almost every day when I'm driving. I'm telling you, man, it's, it, it is crazy down there. And then Jesus said something else. Matthew 5, 38, he, he said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you that, that anyone who resists you, um, do not resist the one who is evil, but anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him as well. You see, I, I have to be honest with you. I like the Old Testament better than the New Testament sometimes. I do. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, you hurt me, I get to hurt you. That's how the Old Testament was. That's so cool. Makes you feel good. Now, that's not how Jesus wants us to live. Jesus said, if someone does something to you and they slap you on the left cheek, you got to turn your right one as well. That is so hard. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody? And you've just got the world's greatest comeback. Man, you've been... I mean, they're, they're talking, and as they're talking, their face is getting red, and they're getting angry, and you've got just the words to say to them that you know is going to drive right to the heart and cut them and tear them apart, and you're going to feel so good. 
But Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Or how about the one that says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray, pray for the ones who are hurting me, who are persecuting me, who are trying to steal my faith. You see what was happening? Jesus was teaching them something that was so different, that was so unique, that was so revolutionary that it just blew their minds. But, but here's what was amazing. It's the second word in the text. The second word is, is the word, uh, the English word is the word authority. In the Greek, it is exousia. Here's what it means. It means to indicate force or capacity or mastery. Jesus taught this lessons on the Sermon on the Mount with such mastery, mastery and such conviction that when people heard it, they knew that there was something different in it. It was not just someone selling snake oil. But it was, it, was, it was authority behind it. There was spirit behind it. There was something behind it that was so different. And here's what was different about it. The word also means magisterial competence. It means the kind of force, the, the kind of authority that takes place when the king walks into the room and he speaks. It's when the queen stands to a podium and she speaks. It's when a ruler stands up and, and they speak with, with a certain kind of authority as, as when they speak it, it is to be done. That's the kind of power that, that accompanied this teaching of Jesus. And, and when, these, when these people who were listening to it heard it, their minds were just so blown away. They were blown away. They could not... They, they were affected in such a way that the Bible says they, it was like they were struck with thunder. Man, I would have liked to have been there. So here's Jesus. He does this kind of teaching that, that let me use another word for it. Jesus did, a te did teaching that was extraordinary. Now, think about that word for a moment. Extraordinary. Extraordinary is, is above ordinary. It's beyond ordinary. Jesus was extraordinary. He was beyond normal. He was beyond the average. He was beyond the mean. Jesus was, was out there. And that's who Jesus was. But as we approach 2020, I want to say to you that, that Jesus wants us to be extraordinary as well. And you think, oh, extraordinary, but, but, but how can I be extraordinary? You see, I think that God has somehow placed in all of us this desire, this inner desire to live a life that, that is extraordinary. Now, no one wants, I believe this is so because I don't think there, there's any bumper sticker that any principal ever sends home from their school that says, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary. Master, you, you don't have a master's academy like that. No, no, of course not. Because we, we want our students to be extraordinary. I mean, who wants to, to be that ordinary person? We don't walk into the room and say, hi, my name's Tim. I'm ordinary. 
We don't, we don't do that because that's not what we want. We don't want to marry someone who's ordinary. We don't want to work in an ordinary job. We want, don't want to live in an ordinary town. We don't want to do anything that's ordinary. We, we really want to do something that, that's extraordinary. God has placed that in us. We, we want to do something with our lives that, that count, that make a difference. We want, to, we want to leave our mark. We want to put our fingerprint upon the world. We want to be this radical disciple of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ because we don't want to be this ordinary existence. Now, we're ordinary people. And sometimes ordinary people do what, I, what I'm going to call um, subordinary things. The other day I said something to my wife that was subordinary. I have to tell you, I, I did not live an extraordinary day. I have those moments. In fact, if I'm being honest, I think it happened twice last week. I wasn't a good boy last week. But the point is, is, is we, we look at our lives and we know that, that there's this, but somehow God has called us to something a little bit more that, that we think there's got to be something just a little bit better out there for me. And sometimes what we do is we try to replace that, we try to achieve that better by, by changing circumstances. We just say to ourselves, listen, if I get a different job, That'll change my life. I'll, maybe I can get something extraordinary. Or we say, well, maybe I'll change my spouse. You know, if I get rid of her or him and find someone better, then I can have a better, more extraordinary life. Sometimes we, we change churches and we think, hey, we're going to have an extraordinary life. No, you can't change churches and be any better than this. I'm just telling you. You see my point? I don't know who said that, but you're my best friend. Here's the thing is, is we do so many things out here to try to be better in here. And Jesus tells us, let's get better in here. And then everything out here will be better. That's the extraordinary life that Jesus is calling us to. And I know when we hear this, we, this argument keeps coming back. I hear it many times throughout my years as a pastor. It's, but I'm not Jesus. I mean, I don't heal the sick. I, I don't teach the thousands. I don't cast out demons. I don't control the weather. Crowds don't follow me. Religious leaders don't seek to crucify me. How can I have this extraordinary life like Jesus? Get ready because I want to, I hope, I hope something happens. I hope your mind goes. Because here's what Jesus said. Jesus said that your life will be greater than his. John 14, 12 says the following, truly, truly, this is Jesus talking. He says, you know, when anyone says truly, truly twice, they mean it. So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. And notice the next part. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. You hear what he just said? Jesus said that you, now he's not, He's not just talking to his disciples. Now, some people like to say, well, well, Jesus was only talking to the people who were there listening. Then why did they write it and pass it on to us? Because it's for us. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is God's directions to us. It was words that were there for them as well, but it's for us today. And Jesus said that you can do greater things. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, in the very first verses of Acts chapter 1, Dr. Luke tells us that he specifically wrote his books, 
Gospel of Luke and Acts so that we would be able to know what Jesus continued, present, future, what Jesus continues to do in the church through His people. See, here's how I, here's how I view it. I don't think the gospel age, I'm not big into ages, but I don't think the gospel age ends with Jesus. Some people say it does. I don't think so. I think the gospel is right now. We're living in a church age, of course, but the gospel is right here, right now. And Jesus said that we can do greater things than He ever did, and that is coming true. In fact, as you heard a couple of weeks ago, we, the, the, the church has preached the gospel to people around the world. To billions of people have been converted over the centuries. We've dispensed aid. We've done education. We've sent food to, to many millions. We, we've done greater things in, the, in this world than Jesus ever did. He, Jesus never left His country. We've been all over the world. Jesus preached to thousands. The church has preached to millions. We collectively are doing these greater works. How can we do this? We can do it because Jesus left His Holy Spirit for us who gives us power and authority to do these works. So here's my, here's my premise to you today. is that the extraordinary life that Jesus wants for us is found when we relentless, relentlessly pursue calling with spiritual authority. When we relentlessly pursue calling with spiritual authority. You see, every one of us in here this morning, right now, if you're in Jesus Christ, you have been commissioned by Jesus. You've been commissioned. In fact, this morning as I was praying about this and I was thinking about this, you need to hear something. I, I'm, I'm not the only pastor here. Pastor Randy's not the only pastor. Pastor Nate, Pastor Doug, our staff. You, you have the same qualifications spiritually as any one of us. God has called you. God has commissioned you, and He is calling you now. His commissioning is universal. That's to all of us. Every one of us has the same commissioning. We're to go out into the, into the world and win the lost. We're to live a holy life. We're to, we're to do all of those things. We all own that. That's ours when we come to Jesus. But every one of us also has a unique calling. You have a unique thing that God wants you to do in your life, and this unique thing is what will make your life extraordinary. Let, let me show you what this looks like. There was a woman by the name of Agnes, and I can't pronounce her last name, Bohanyu. That's, that's the best my Macedonian can do. She was a young girl when she decided that she was going to dedicate her life to serving the poor. She was born in 1910 in the capital city of Macedonia, and she just felt this calling from a very young age to just, just to be among the poor and to help them. When she turned 18, she was given permission to join a group of nuns in Ireland. After a few months of training with the sisters of, of Loreto, she then traveled to India, where she took formal religious vows in 1931, and she chose to be named Saint Teresa, the patron saint of missionaries. A young girl in Macedonia decides to go to India to work with the poor. In 1931, no one had really ever heard of her. 
So she, she took her vows and, and she began working as a teacher. But however, having, having working as a teacher, she began looking around her community and her city. And as she was wandering around the streets of Calcutta and as she was doing ministry there, she was deeply impressed that her real work was to be working with those who are impoverished. And so she started this, this new order called the Missionaries of Charity. And her primary objective was to look after people that nobody else was prepared to look after. So here's what she does. She grabs some of her other nun friends who, who also share this conviction. She starts this order. She takes off her, her traditional Roman Catholic vestments and she puts on a white sari trimmed in blue, the one that you see her wear or had seen her wear to this day because that color and the, those colors connected with the poor of the city. And she began to minister on the street. She left the convent, was living literally sometimes on the street. They were begging like other beggars, doing all they could to raise money and raise funds to help the poor. But she got noticed. 1952, she opens up her first home for the dying, which allowed people to die with dignity. And she would spend time with those who were dying so that they might have this sense of dignity and death and have an opportunity to know Jesus. Her work became so popular, as you know today, that now there, by 2013, there were 700 missions operating in 130 countries in the world. They included orphanages and hospices for the terminally ill. Here's what she said. She said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Now, on the screen, there's another picture here. You know her. That's Mother Teresa. This right here is, is um, her Missionaries of Charity home. In February of 2000, uh, when I was in India, I had an opportunity to go and stand right there at that door. In fact, when, when me and a buddy, we were there, our group wasn't going to go there, but we felt so compelled that we needed to go down there and actually see this place. So he and I go, and we get down there. When we arrived, they were closed. I'm like, oh, man, we've come all the way from America, and I want to see, see this while I'm in Calcutta. This is the one thing I, I had to see. So we knock on the door. No one answers. We knock on the door again. No one answers. We knock on the door a third time, and... This nun comes to the door and she says, we're closed. And uh, we begged with her, we pleaded with her. She let us come in. We got to walk inside after the facility was closed. It was quiet. We looked around and there were just people lying on bed, cot after cot, bed after bed in this place. My friend and I, we didn't get to do much because she only wanted to stay for just a few minutes. But while we were there, we, we bowed our heads together and we prayed. Never would have done that. Never would have heard of Mother Teresa if she had not relentlessly pursued the calling on her life. And the work that she does is extraordinary. There's probably another man that you've never heard of. His name is Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball lived in the middle 1800s, and, and he was a Sunday school teacher. Hey, he taught a Sunday school class of boys, and if you've ever taught a Sunday school class of boys, you know that, that that sometimes is not a class, it's a fight. 
But he was so convicted. He so loved these boys, and he so wanted to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he had one particular boy in his class that he felt like had a lot of potential, but he would always sleep in his class. So he decided one day that what he was going to do, he's going to go to where this young man worked. He was going to go there, and he was going to share Christ with him right there at his work. So he got up the nerve and the courage to go in there, and he goes in there to this, this shoe shop. Goes to the shoe shop, he walks up to the clerk, puts his hand on his shoulder, puts his foot on a, on a crate, and he says, I want, to, I want you to sign my shoes, and while you're shining my shoes, I want to tell you about Jesus. And, and so he does. But nothing seemed to happen. So Edward Kimball leaves the store, and he's just thinking, oh, I've, just, I've botched this. But that very afternoon, this young man whose name was Dwight Moody realized that Jesus had come into his life. Now, Dwight Moody, what's so interesting about him is he became one of the most prominent evangelists in America. But in 1873, Dwight Moody went to England to preach a series of crusades there. And while he was there, he went to a Baptist chapel who was pastored by a scholar whose name was F.B. Meyer. I have one of his books. Meyer had disdained this American preacher for his um, unlettered and unconventional style. But soon after listening to him, Meyer was transfixed and even transformed by his message. Moody was so impressed by Meyer that Moody invited Meyer to come to America and to preach. So Meyer came over and he began preaching and he had great impact upon the culture. In one of the crusades that he was preaching in, that he was preaching and he challenged the crowd by saying this, if you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? That remark changed the life of a struggling young pastor whose name was J. Wilbur Chapman. Now, we don't know much about J. Wilbur Chapman, even though he was a traveling evangelist, but here's what he did. He found a professional baseball player who got converted to Jesus, and he came on tour with him, and this converted baseball player whose name was Billy Sunday became one of the most, uh, most spectacular revivalists of the period. Billy Sunday was preaching one time in Charlotte, North Carolina, and there was a group of converts who, were, who, were, uh, who resulted from his preaching. So this group of converts were so impressed with what had happened that they began to pray that Billy Sunday could come back or that a revival of that nature could happen once more. A couple, year late, a couple years later, 1934, this North Carolina group invited an evangelist whose name was Mordecai Ham to conduct a citywide crusade. On the stationery of, of the hotel, Mordecai Ham wrote the following words because the revival wasn't going well. He was discouraged. So here's what he wrote on the Charlotte Hotel stationery. He said, Lord, give us a Pentecost here. Pour out thy spirit tomorrow. And on that morrow, on the next day at the revival, there was a Central High School student who gave his heart to Jesus Christ. His name was Billy Graham. Billy Graham came to Jesus because a man by the name of Edward Kimball received the call from God. He relentlessly pursued it because he wanted people to know Jesus. He wanted his life to count. He wanted people to, he wanted to make a difference in this world. And because he persisted, we have Billy Graham today. Cindy and I, last year, we got to go visit the Billy Graham Library. It's one of the most amazing places. In fact, here's how I feel about it. If I, we could rent buses and pack all of you into buses, we would take a road trip. 
We'd go to Billy Graham Library, and I'm telling you, it's like holy ground when you walk there. It, it's just an amazing place. But here's what you need to know. Because of Edward Kimball's work in leading Billy Graham through Mordecai Ham to Christ, Billy Graham Association reports that 3.2 million people have prayed to receive Christ through his preaching. He shared the gospel with more people in live audiences than anyone else in history. Nearly 215 million people in over 185 countries and territories. It's further reported that, that hundreds of millions more have been reached through television, video, film, and webcasts. And when you add print material into all of that, Billy Graham has probably reached 20% of the entire world for Jesus Christ. And he did it in part because one Sunday school teacher relentlessly pursued his calling and made a difference in a single life. If you're like me, you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, I'm never going to be Mother Teresa. I'm never going to be Billy Graham. You may even be thinking, I'm not even sure I'm good enough to be Edward Kimball. And while our work at times may not rise to that level, I promise you, I promise you, if you are dedicated and surrendered to God, you will accomplish much. When you, when you become a Sunday school teacher, you have an opportunity to invest in lives. When you work in the children's ministry or the youth ministry, you have a chance to invest in the lives of people. When you go to work tomorrow, whatever you do, whether it's banking or, or working at Walmart or, or working at a gas station or, or selling cars or whatever it is you do, that may be God's call for your life. And He wants you to do it with an extraordinary sense of call and commitment. So how do we take all of this and live an extraordinary life? Let me just give you a couple of quick thoughts on that. The first thing you have to do is you have to accept God's call for your life. You have to accept God's calling. Listen, God's speaking to you right now. If you haven't already heard Him, He is speaking. You just have to accept what He's asking you to do. 1 Corinthians seven seventeen says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He'll help you do it. The second thing you have to do is you have to pursue your call relentlessly with resilience. I love the scripture in Acts chapter 4 after Jesus was, had, had gone on to heaven and Peter had preached his first sermon. Now in chapter 4 of Acts, they're, they're preaching again. And, and when the Pharisees saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary, see that word? Ordinary men, they were, what were they? Astonished. Their minds were, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The word ordinary in that text is also translated as common. In the Greek, it's one of my favorite Greek words. Here's the Greek word for ordinary and common. Idiotes. You know what it means on the street? It means an idiot. So Peter and John were idiots. They were. I mean, have you ever, you ever talked to an unsaved person, they look at you, they may not say it, but in their mind they're thinking, you're an idiot to follow Jesus. You're not smart enough to be a real person. You're just an idiot. That's who we are. I hate to say it, but I, I want to be first idiot. In many classes, I have been. 
We have to pursue our call with resilience. When you do that, you also have to live with authority, live that call with authority. Remember what we said earlier, that, that one of the meanings of authority is the magisterial competence, that when you walk into the room, the king walks into the room, he says something, and it's, and it's, just, it, it's just weighty because he has the power, the authority to back it. When God gives you that call, He also gives you the authority to what He has called you to do. Jesus gave it to His disciples in Matthew 10, 1. He says, and He called to Him His 12 disciples and gave them authority over every unclean spirit to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. You have authority. You, you have this, this empowerment that the Spirit gives you when you're doing your work. So, so if you're an educator, serve with an extraordinary sense of God's call in your life as you minister to your kids or to your students. If, if you are in business, serve with, in a sense that people know that there's something different about your business. Whatever it is you do, live your call with authority. And the last thing I want to give you is to serve others with surprise. Serve others with surprise. Jesus surprised the multitudes. Their minds were blown at His teaching. His, his teaching struck their souls like thunder. When you do something that surprises people by going beyond you're going to create a moment of opportunity. So when you're, when you're angry with someone and you're ready to murder them, and you find the discipline, the Spirit-led discipline, the prayed over, fasted over, Spirit-led discipline, to respond with a kind word. Wow. They're not expecting that. When, when, when your enemy hits you on the one cheek rather than rearing back and going to go all WWE on them, you resist and you say, it's going to surprise them. When someone asks for a dollar and you give them two, when a student asks you to help and you go with the next mile, whatever it is, when you do it with surprise, Christ will be there. Because whatever you do, do it as though you're doing it for the Lord and not for the men. And the, the Lord never, never wants the ordinary. He wants that best from us. So brothers and sisters, extraordinary as I define it. It's not fame. It's not riches. It's not position. It's not big accomplishments. It's not being free from scandal. It's not having awards or accolades or any of the things that this world deems important. Extraordinary living is when you and I pursue, relentlessly pursue, calling with spiritual authority. And when we do, Ephesians tells us this, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand and let's sing.
them high you choose the weak and make them strong you heal our brokenness inside and give us life the same love that set the captives free the same love that opened eyes to see is calling us all by name you are calling us all by name the same god that spread the heavens wide the same god that was crucified is calling us all by name you are calling us all by name you take the faithless one aside and speak the words you are mine you call the sinning and the proud come to me now the same love that set the captives free the same love that opened eyes to see is calling us all by name You're calling, you're calling. 
discover it and then walk in it. And that's that's what part of the church is here for, is to help you discover that. But the church is here so that the community can discover Christ through you. So I hope you'll, you'll take that message. If you have questions, feel free to, to reach out to the staff. We'll be happy to sit down and, and flesh that out with you a little bit more. Before we leave today, as we're thinking about the church, I want to mention a couple things real quickly that, that might be important for you, and I hope it is. We uh, as we As we turn a new page in 2020, from the past that we've been experiencing as a congregation, we're moving forward with, with confidence and boldness that God is, is not done with Pathway Church. So we're moving forward. To, to help us do that, we're, we're offering uh, two things that we want you to, to take advantage of if you're able. Beginning this Wednesday night, I'm going to teach a, a four-part series called I Will Build My Church. It's, uh, it's, it's not a Bible study per se, although we're definitely going to de- delve into some scriptural passages. But we're going to try to help you think through what does church really look like today. And I'm um, going to ask some tough questions. Uh, we want the open-minded to come. The closed-minded can come and sit at the back. We will have ushers, uh, but we, we want you to come and be a part of that. We're, we're going we're gonna to try to host this in the, um, um, the, the chapel, I believe, beginning at 630. Uh, if, if the chapel doesn't hold us all, um, we're going to do like Jesus did. We're going to go sit outside and just have a little mini sermon on the mount. So I don't know what we'll do, but we'll, we'll figure something out. So that's this Wednesday. Next Sunday at 4 we have something else. It's called Leadership Community. Now, people have asked me about, what does this look like? What does this mean? Well, here's what it means this next Sunday. It means if you are in leadership, you need to be here at 4 o'clock. If you are serving as a volunteer, that's what we also call leadership. You need to be here. Uh, we want you to be here. You need to be here. It's very important. But if you're thinking about leadership, you're curious about leadership, or you're breathing, we want you to come to this first one. Here's what we say. Here's what we say to people. We all have influence over somebody. And in some sense, that makes us a leader. So we want you to come. Here's what we're going to do this week. It's kind of a soft launch of our leadership community. In the, in, at the beginning at 4 o'clock, we're going to uh, take some time and reveal the survey results from the survey that you've taken. Um, we're also going to share with you the implications that Cindy and I, as, um, as partners with you in this journey, the things that we see. Um, we think there's a lot of great things we need, to, we need we can look at and praise God for. There are some areas where we need to we need to have a, a moment where we we ask God to help us understand and to think through some of those things. So we want to invite you to be there. Your questions will we have open question time. You can ask questions, press into that, and, and we'll be there. And then when that moment with the survey ends, we're going to take a few more minutes, not a long time, but after that, we're going to take a little bit of time to tell you what it means. Uh, to be a part of a leadership community, why it is so important, why growing churches have leadership community. They call it different things. They do it different ways. But growing churches have that. If we want to be the church that God's called us to be, 
we need to do something like this, and we're going to share what that looks like with you uh, as, a, as a, one of the strategies forward. Why we do that? We do it because we believe in you. Um, uh, I, I'm gonna, Just to be very candid, just for one last moment, be very candid. The reason you have staff or the reason you should have staff is to help you be a better church and to be better Christians. You're not, we're, you're not here for us. We're here for you. We're your servants. We walk among you. We have certain responsibilities. But we're here to make you better, to make this church better, to make this community better, to make the world better. And we need to work together on that, all right? And um, so I, I, I'm just excited about January. Uh, some great things are happening. And uh, be sure and read your e-news on Wednesday. We're going to have some other information that we don't have time for this morning. Kept you a little longer today. Sorry about that. But uh, God is blessed and, and uh, he's honored by our presence together. So uh, would you pray with me as we leave? Father, our benediction today is that you would just... Uh, you would just walk with us. And that Ephesians 3, 20, Lord, that, that you do things that surprise and amaze us that are far beyond our understanding or our comprehension. Lord, why you would choose me or any one of us to serve you, we, we don't understand, but we're so thankful and grateful that you have. Help us, Lord, to not just, just to be our best, but God, help us to be extraordinary in what we do for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. God bless you.